0: Hello and welcome to the final MIT Press podcast of 2020. This episode will feature a discussion between the physician and anthropologist Eugene Richardson and the philosopher Bruno Latour. Bruno Latour is a French philosopher, anthropologist, and sociologist. He's the author of many books, including We Have Never Been Modern, Laboratory Lifestyle, and Science in Action, as well as multiple books which have been published by the MIT Press, including Reset Modernity, Making Things Public an Iconoclash. The project he's discussing today is the book Critical Zones, which he co-edited with Peter Weibel. This book draws from the ZKM Center for Art and Media exhibition of the same name. This project brings together artists, scientists, and philosophers to address the disorientation of life in a world undergoing climate change. It features contributions from the likes of Donna Haraway, Isabel Stengers, And Dipesh Chakrabarti, Eugene Richardson is the assistant professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School and has also worked as a clinical case management consultant for the WHO's Ebola response in the Democratic Republic of Congo. More recently he was seconded to Sierra Leone to join their COVID-19 response. Eugene is the author of Epidemic Illusions, his first book, which publishes with the MIT Press this month. In this book, he draws on post-colonial theory, medical anthropology, and critical science studies to examine the ways in which public health perpetuates neocolonialism and inequality. With all that being said, I'll now pass over to Eugene and Bruno.
1: So yeah, it's, it's so great to meet you. I love your work, and uh, I am currently in San Francisco, oh, well. although... I'm based in, um, in Boston. My faculty position's in Boston and my research is in West Africa. So my carbon footprint <laughs> would not, does not sit well. <laughs> uh, so I have to find a way to stop all this commuting, but
2: currently that is my setup. I know right now we are all stuck. So we are <laughs> earning some time now, all of us.
1: My, uh, I've been seconded to the Africa CDC to, to help with COVID work, so I've been flying a lot ah, to okay. Ah, okay. Ethiopia, even, Sierra Leone, so even now I'm still contributing lots of carbon.
2: And you are in San Francisco for the African COVID, or you are in San Francisco because you are stuck there? So, my family oh,
1: okay. lives here and all our friends. Um, and because I travel so much, okay. it's it better for my wife and child to have
2: her village in okay, bubble instead of leaving her in Bo- Boston where she doesn't know anybody. Because California is a terrible uh, moment in, in terms of COVID, right?
1: Yes. You know, the Bay Area is probably the only place that is okay, uh-huh. even though we're, we're getting close to about 15% uh, availability of ICU beds, but every other county. Is doing quite poorly, which is surprising because they did some serious lockdowns here. The governor was very serious. And uh, I'm not sure how to explain because, you know, when I look at other places, they're a lot more flippant about not wearing masks mm-hmm. and social distancing. And it seems maybe I'm just a little biased by San Francisco, seeing mm-hmm. that people behave well here. And it's probably much worse when you go to LA because.
2: So, so this is this is a big prime sum because I have hundred questions to ask about the COVID and um, how are we supposed to to do this? What is the topic of a of a podcast?
0: The topic is just bringing together different writers, academics, artists to discuss their work.
2: So uh, okay, so I can ask questions as well. Okay, yeah, yeah of
0: course, good. yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I, th- I thought we could kind of primarily focus on the Critical Zones project and also. Gene's work with epidemic illusions, but, you know, okay. just talk about whatever you find interesting, because that tends to be the richest okay. way to frame a discussion, I think.
1: Well, I'd like to start by saying that, um, you know, I, I, my mentor is Paul Farmer, who uh, okay, just good. won the Bear Gruen Prize yesterday. And I said I was uh, going to be in it, uh, to interview you today. I said, oh, that man, I love him. He can see around corners. <laughs> which I thought was the best compliment for a scholar I've ever heard. <laughs> so That's kind. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to talking today. Maybe we could talk a bit about the start with the book and, uh, and then see where the conversation evolves. Hey, good. And so I thought it was fantastic. It really does its job trying to, you know, joggle people's heads, you know, wrap their minds around something that isn't adequately explained by the natural science narrative. And so I wanted to first find out how, how did you come up with an idea for, for such an eclectic group to come together, or how did it come about, such an interdisciplinary collaboration that really transcends normal academic collaborations?
2: Well, it did start actually with a, a project of mine uh, linking my university, which is a social science university, a sort of LSE, and we have a, a scientific university in Paris where I'd organize a Politics of the Earth, modestly called Politics of the Earth Program. And one of the first talks to see how we could collaborate, something which I've been trying to do for 40 years, but it's not always easy to work with uh, scientists. One guy uh, did a talk on critical zone, which I didn't know the term, and actually very few people know that it's actually used. It comes from the United States, actually. And unfortunately, when now that the book is out, the NSF decided to discontinue the (laughs) program. So it's slightly uh, strange that it's a Frenchman in Germany publishing a big book on critical zone when the NSF itself is not so keen on pursuing the the funding of all these observatories. But since I was interested in Gaia, and Gaia gets you into all sorts of trouble and is very complicated, I found that critical zone was a, a good way to get a handle on the question of Gaia. So I began to work with this uh, scientist, and I did uh, field work like in the old days, <laughs> sociology of science, so to speak. You know this sort of thing, the life of scientists. And I got more and more interested by the the, the group of people. And then I began to to realize that these people had actually a lot of questions dealing with what in my field we call metaphysics, basically. Where is the critical zone? Why is it so difficult to represent? Uh, What's different with nature, so to speak? How high it is, how low it is? I mean, all sorts of questions, which I find absolutely fascinating. As I've done already several exhibitions in ZKM, I proposed to the director, my good friend Peter Weibel, to say, well, if you are interested in anything linking science and art, that's where you have to go. Also, because as you know, the question of soil and land and earth is attracting a lot of attention from the artist. So it was easy to find the artist and the scientist, and I just had to add the anthropologist and, and the philosophers to say, okay, let's let's do a sort of not a sum, of course, but an exploration of the whole connection. Because if we live on critical zone, it's not the same thing as where we lived before, and that's a, a key change. And of course, we might talk about that. <laughs> I have lots of questions myself. Is that the COVID? crisis and, in general, the microbe on which I've worked in the old days, accentuate this urgent shift in cosmology, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So for me, there is a connection between the COVID crisis and the critical zone argument. So I was fortunate to be able to do the exhibition. Unfortunately, this exhibition, I've seen it once for a few hours and then crash. It's now completely closed and uh, how to say, muff bald, I think there's a word in when you put things in, into a, a sort of silent silo. So there is no way for neither German nor French to go there. This is unfortunate. Wow. And I'm doing another exhibition in Taipei on a similar subject. I cannot go either because of the COVID. Oh. So I've done two exhibitions this year, and in none of them I can go. This is really strange. So this is actually. Our- I come about the critical zone project. I'm very proud of the catalog, also because the design guy is a genius and is in my office. And the Italian guy who did the design—I hope MIT realized that—is a complete uh, extraordinary designer.
1: No, I agree. The the presentation is lovely, and I saw that it did make the New York Times list of best art books, which I would be extremely proud of. I mean, if you're able to get a science book, a uh, science-based book, into their art. Well, I would be more
2: proud if it was also in the science book section. Then. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll it's with but, <laughs> but I
1: think you've achieved your goal of really transcending these boundaries, which is the problem in the first place. People, I think, sticking to the narrow disciplinary views. But I also, you know, we're very appreciative of someone like you bringing these worlds together because it's, it's very hard to do. I mean, I find myself as an anthropologist in a position... Yeah, you are adding, used to that. Yeah, but I'm rarely successful in in bridging the worlds. And so maybe it takes like the Weberian charismatic leadership like you have to actually do it more than just like the actual ideas. I think you have to have... Can I add something?
2: It's also also the medium of exhibition. Mm. I don't know if you have tried it, but the medium of exhibition is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Because it's not like a book or it's not like a, a talk or film. Because by definition, you bring things completely different when by the others in the space. Yeah. So I learned that the, the four catalog. I've done four catalogs with MIT, and every time it's an exhibition, and it, it has a way to bring different domain together in a way which is not possible if you say, I'm going to give a talk simultaneously on Donna Haraway and Gaia and on Critical Zone, people will never be there. But if you are in a space, you, you see the connection.
1: Mm. No, I, I think some of that is rubbing off on me and the book I've published with them as well. It it wasn't an exhibition, but I did include things like flash fiction yes. and I oh, yeah. um, re- redid Socratic dialogues, things to alter the form of... Of
2: a, of a scientific book. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We were actually, I want to ask you, because we were, of course, in Germany, very inspired by Humboldt. Mm-hmm. Now, in your field... In all the question of epidemiology and social medicine, etc., is Humboldt also going for a revival, or is it only for geoscience and uh, natural sciences? Or?
1: Yeah, I would say that the European that has received the revival for us is Virchow, V I R C H O, the Polish pathologist and epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. He's often considered the father of social medicine, you know, linking political action to how the microbes work. And so I see him cited more in my personal area than, than humbled.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very good. Second question I had in the book, you talk about promoting a grassroots politics and you, you can see the debacle that we've had in the U S with our past four years and even with our recent elections. Can you talk more about the actual politics that your book and landing on earth would inspire? Because, you know, I'm left to think, well, maybe there's some hope in the left populism, but there are the problems with populism in the first place. So I'm just curious in this volatile era, especially on my side of the ocean, what kind of politics do you think the critical zone focus can inform?
2: Actually, the whole idea about doing this exhibition fairly urgently in in Germany was of course due to Trump's election. And I did another book called down to earth on this question because of course my interpretation of a trumpism so to speak it's not that it's just a populist movement it's that it's a divide on where we live and i'm very interested to hear you about that because it's the connection between the denial of the covid by the same government to deny climate change or mutation seems to me uh, very telling so it's not a question of people becoming mad or people having been ignored or all of the argument about white men being looked down by the elite, etc., they live, I mean, they are, they are told, push to live in a planet, as I, I say, completely different from the others. Mm. And I don't think we, we had uh, this idea of civil conflict. I mean, we, of course, had many civic war, of course, but never about what the planet is actually made of. Mm. So if you did, I say, no, I live in a planet where there's no microbes, it's not dangerous, it's going to pass away and there is no climate, and the guy next door has a climate to handle and there are microbes that are actually making him sick or her sick. Where is the, the possibility of, of arguing? So all of our politics was to make people who disagree, of course, on values and religion and ideologies and the way the state is run and so on. But not, never, but I don't live in the same world as yours. Maybe that's going to disappear with the new administration, but I doubt it very much. I think it's it's a very, for people to learn that the world in which we are going to move is the world we describe there in critical zone, I mean, the terrestrial, is a such traumatic experience that it's not populism in the sense of uh, just people uh, narrowly tied to their ethnical uh, of the racial uh, limit, but you have a much wider perspective because you are interested in the post-colonial version of that. So I don't know what is your version of your question, actually. Yeah,
1: I'd have to say that I come from, you know, having worked in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa for, you know, the last 20 years, and having grown up on thinkers like Kwame Nkrumah from the 1960s, talking about how the neocolony or neocolonialism operates. I still see things, you know, I think it was brilliant in the, the the way it's described in Critical Zones to describe people living in one place, but from another. To me, that's another way of talking about neocolonialism, but, but in a way that is maybe more accessible to people on the taking side. And so having sort of grown up with that outlook, I still think that it has something to do with in the U.S. We have a group of mostly, you know, white people or that have benefited from a white supremacist regime for the past 400 years. That credit, that that free um, subsidy, you know, think of it as a white subsidy, is going away through multiculturalism, through places like the Rust Belt where there were, you know, manufacturing jobs for so many years; those places being left behind. And so, I think there is something to be said for people saying, "Look, we had it good, and now we don't anymore." And let's blame the immigrants for it. And Trump is somebody that allows us to be racist without actually saying we're racist. But why? Why?
2: why that, that's anger. Why denying COVID for instance? I mean, how? I mean, this is completely different sort of thinking if you have been left behind, the only thing you say when you're in a crisis, two big crises, is, okay, how do we catch up? I mean, the denial is completely bizarre in this situation. This is why I'm not sure of the argument about, I mean, what you say is certainly right, but it's just a traditional sort of social angers and, and, I mean, class politics, let's say. Right. But yet geo-class politics. I mean, something which is very, very strange. And we have to explain denial. I mean, even today, the, the president is still denying that even uh, was beaten at the election. I mean, you, you need <laughs> yes. something which, which is really not simply being looked down by the elite. What is your take on that? I mean, why denying COVID? Right. Why denying the mask? I mean, this is so strange for the argument, which I understand, but it would just generate the usual class warfare. That class warfare and denial are two different things. You see what I'm. I mean? Yeah, no, I, I understand.
1: And to me, it is also puzzling. I think my personal opinion is that it has something to do with how the, the, these, this anger is manipulated. So, and this could be naive of me, but I still sort of see that there's a possibility of a real populism where right and left see that it's actually not, you know, the right sees that it's not the immigrants that are the ones uh, ruining things for them, but it's Wall Street and and the elites. And so um, they've been, they're managed to believe that it is, you know, the coastal elites like me, not Wall Street, but sort of the, the liberal elites and the immigrants that are taking away their great America. It allows the conspiracy theories to take hold because it's it's sort of, this is the flag that I can hold that is anti-you. This is me exercising my rights.
2: To the point of dying because you didn't put a mask? Well, and that's what I find. People, they
1: don't change their mind until they see somebody die. In fact, I wanted to do a modeling study. Something similar happened in Sierra Leone, but for very different reasons when I was working on Ebola, where people didn't believe it was real until they saw a few people die. Mm -hmm. And we traced it back to, you know, mistrust that had been engendered from colonial period, from slaves being taken 400 years ago. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And we wanted to do a modeling study, like how many people do you have to see die before you believe that Ebola is real and you change your views? And that, to us, would be a measure of how strong distrust was created by colonial legacies. We could do something similar in the U.S. How many people? What's the number? Oh, I, I don't know, like three or four. I mean, we get, we never oh, really got around lot. to writing that's it. A lot. <laughs> but I, no, I know it is. Same thing here. I think it's like you know. Now that I work in the hospital, I see people change their tunes, but they have to have seen or heard a few people die, and that I think is a, it's it's very sad. But it's the strength of a measure of how yes, indeed, you're right, yes,
2: yes, yes, right
1: mistrust and how mm. much uh, because they eventually come around to it. No one can deny when they see somebody. Or loved ones or friends dying from, they say, "Okay, I have to accept it. I'm going to wear the mask." But until they have the mm-hmm. utmost empiric evidence, right? They're not happy with 90 percent seeing it. They have to see it a few times in front of their face. Then it becomes undeniable. So that's
2: reassuring. That's slightly reassuring.
1: <laughs> it is, but it's also very sad. They do change their mind. Yes, <laughs> they do. Okay, uh, they
2: don't. They, the conspiracy doesn't is not pursued until, even if you are. Seen four of your family die. But sometimes it, or sometimes it can change. Then it's, uh, well,
1: then the virus was created by China and sent out as a weapon or, you know, yeah. they, it can evolve. Yeah. But at least there is an iterative process. And, but to me, it's sad. It, and it's amazing that, you know, this how many deaths do you need to see
2: can be actually used as sort of a measure of the level of... That's a clever one. I, I, I wish the, thing, the study had been made. <laughs> it was somewhat terrifying. Yeah. Something like the famous study about people believing in the, the end of the world and, and thinking it was, even when the end of the world didn't come back, right. didn't come, people were still sticking to it in a new way. Right. So it's not that sort of thing. I mean, people can change their mind. Even Trump, I decided that he has lost, actually, at some point. Uh, yeah, Even right. McDonald's changed its mind. So <laughs> so what is your, can you tell me more about the the African question that is my interpretation of the American populism, so to speak, is that behind the political, the social aspect, there is another thing, which is about where do you live, mm. uh, the, as if the land, I mean, it's not that different from what you said, actually, about we had a good time and now we have to pay for all of that and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. So how does it register when you get into Africa, where you have a much longer experience? How how is the the question of epidemic and climate mutation actually fitting together? Because for me, I see the two crises embedded into one another, but maybe it's completely different in your, your experience in Africa. You know,
1: my colleagues there, I think they see that, they clearly see that there is the phenomenon of, of the two, uh, ubiquity or the two worlds where they are being used still as you know, resource farms for global North elites to live more comfortably than them. Uh, a lot of the countries that I work in feel though that because they've sort of, their country has inherited uh, a local elite that acts as gatekeeper for these resources instead of acting in the interests of the population that this phenomenon still continues. They also see that, you know, they're paying the price for climate change that they didn't even contribute to. And that, you know, there should be a form of reparation like climate reparations Mm -hmm. where as we are reducing, you know, our carbon footprint, they should be allowed to produce to the point where they can achieve a level of industrialization that allows them to live with some form of equity. So I think it's, the, the insight into what's happening and the insights that you know are pointed out in this book are are there it's just that the power structure to enable it is not and I think it has something to do with um, the the crux of the question is how do we get the the people in the global north to realize that they are living from you know they're living in one place and living from another you know when you talk to most of the I'd say, you know, Americans about this. It's still the classic, no, 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 I pulled myself up. You know, my father was a janitor and now I'm a banker and I've worked hard and I've saved and all that. There is no consciousness of the American economy was built on, you know, first cotton, then, you know, the triangle trade, then imperialism. Like there's, there really, it's very, uh, difficult, even Mitch McConnell. You know, uh, why would we ever think about reparations if you know that ha- all that stuff happened 400 years ago? And so, to me, that's a very important part of it: is getting that realization to take hold. And how do how do we do that? I think books like this will help, right, to sort of um, shape people's yeah, minds. Yeah,
2: there's a, a, a very interesting set of papers uh, in the book by Charbonnier and uh, Tim Mitchell and others on the on the Mm -hmm. complete disconnect between the world we live in and the world we live from. Right. Of course, (laughs) it's it's another way to talk about colonialism. And the difficulty, of course, is that if you begin to imagine how would you stop, I mean, if you try to make the correspondence between the world we live on and the world we live from, Mm -hmm. which has not happened in the West since probably, I don't know, Middle Age. the the correspondence between the two, the superposition of the two world, requires amazing changes in the economy. The threat of that change, I think, for me, is what accounts for maybe the populism in developed countries, Mm. but probably also the anger and the difficulty. But my question in Africa, but my question was about the, the link between the microbes. I mean, the I mean, as you show yourself in your work, the history of public health and microbes in Africa is very different from, especially in West Africa. I mean, in tropical Africa, mm-hmm. of course, very different from our experience. So, probably, am I right in thinking that there is a much more divide between the microbe question and the climate question? If I understood what you say, the climate question is seen as a, as a the inequality in the extractivism between the rich and the and Africa, right, and not as not yeah. as a question which is really eating, so to speak, on the fabric of the society itself. In other words, framed into the north-south relation. Mm. Fernando, what about the COVID, actually? You must have lots of new data on the, the way the COVID is actually...
1: Yeah, you know, I think, I think they see, or the people I work with, it seems like climate is thought of as a superstructure still to this... Uh, neo-coloniality.
2: Okay, yeah, I understand that.
1: Right. And so when I talk to people, for example, in Congo about uh, a lot of people didn't believe Ebola was real and they refused to take the vaccine. But when you start talking to them and really exploring why they don't believe in it, people are often led down the well. You know, the UN has showed up in their white vehicles telling us to take this needle when they've been here for 20 years trying to solve this Great Lakes conflict billion, and they've achieved nothing except more civilian deaths every day. And then you go back a little further, and the U.S. killed our, or U.S. helped kill our first elected prime minister, and then you've got King Leopold behind that. It's like every time somebody has shown up, there's been taken. Why would it be any different right now? And so to use uh, Bordeaux as an example, I feel like there's a habitus of um, not, it's not even mistrust, it's avoiding depredation, right? Uh, how do we avoid constant depredation? And to me, it's a natural, like, I don't want the vaccine, I don't think it's real. That's, it sort of evolves out of this habitus. Same thing with COVID. Is this another part of empire that has come? And to avoid it, we do what we usually do to avoid depredation, which is either to, is to elude it, is not to engage in it. So that's been my understanding. I'd be interested to, you know, we talked about the U.S. and and where I worked in Africa, but what about in France, the yellow vests? Because to me, they're not. Uh, I don't quite understand them fully and where they're coming from and where do
2: they oh, sit? The, the the yellow vests are very much in the same uh, range of question as the one on populism in the. In the the U.S., actually, it started about the question of ecological taxes. So the the origin of the the dispute was about uh, what they saw saw as an unfair taxation of uh, gas, gasoline, imposed by, again, the same elite on on them. The problem with the yellow vest is that they, they are French, so they imagine that the state is supposed to do something and solve the question, so then, of course, the direction is completely different from the, from the U.S., where the state is the enemy. I mean, except for Medicare, Medicare and some other things. But the, 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 the thing didn't go anywhere because people kept demonstrating against the state. And contrary to what people imagine, the French state is actually fairly weak and unequipped to deal with this with all of this uh, situation. So it, it, it did a lot of agitation, so to speak, But it never was, uh, there was never a Trump to (laughs) pick it up still. I mean, so far Mm -hmm. it might come. But the the weight and the expectation that the state is there to solve the problem and that's the only entity to which you talk to and address is so strong that it it paralyzes, in a way, the, the yellow vest. There is no tradition I mean not for uh, these people I mean there are lots of tradition of activism mm-hmm. but this these are were difficult to to connect with the yellow vest so the one who, who imagine other way to deal with uh, the earth basically and the Eurovest vest were in fact fairly divorced I mean there were some connections but actually few so we are stuck now because we are now uh, the state is actually again uh, seems very very strong but it's for another question, which is make us uh, submitted to those horrible lockdown. Mm. And it produced a lot of mistrust. But since it's about health, the level of misunderstanding is immense, the level of anger is immense, but the level of action is almost nil. Because you cannot resist a state, a somewhat well-organized state, even though they made lots of mistakes, in the way you could contest Last year, we had a month of dispute about the new laws about retirement. People knew how to react. But here, you are told to lock down. You, basically, you do lock down, I mean, even if you are angry. But we will have to pay at that moment. At some moment, we, the state will have to pay the range of uh, anger that it creates. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different trajectory. And the COVID actually make me very worried because it's not a good preparation for the next steps we would have to take to absorb the ecological mutation. And if a distrust of the imposition of all those measures in the name of health, even though people understand that health has has a privilege, will not prepare people for other much tighter (laughs) decisions which will have to be taken to mutate the, the system in another trajectory. And that's what worries me because, I mean, the only thing I want now is to take a plane and get out (laughs) and move and and get back, get back the freedom of movement we had. You are not going to stop the lockdown and then start to impose the the dozens of of decisions which have to be made to absorb the ecological crisis. So I'm very worried. The, the, The state which is able to obtain this thing for health and you show yourself that even in Africa there are lots of ways to obtain that a fairly coherent health system. There is not, not the equivalent at all for the ecological questions. I mean, they, they just they just dabble at the at the margin with a few things like, yeah. I mean, electric cars and. But it's not the the spirit of a which is at the scale of a, of a mutation. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the lockdown will play in America against the, the, the Biden administration might have more. I don't know. I mean, what, what's your take on that, on the, on the link between the two? How does a state imposing lots of things on us in the name of health uh, create a position for the state to impose things on us in the name of ecological mutation? I mean, the, how does that play in the U.S.?
1: Quickly, I'll say that I. I think some of us here t- tend to romanticize French protests. And so I was hoping out of the yellow vest there would come some movement from social class to geosocial class, like the chapter in the book. But I guess that that's not on their agenda to lead that transformation. Well, it
2: it, <laughs> it brought the idea of geosocial class the COVID did, not the yellow vest. Ah, okay. Because the COVID made people realize in everywhere in Europe, that the, the 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 way we define classes were linked to actually very different role. I mean, this is of of course the state in the state as well. That the, I mean, nurses and teachers and delivery people and all. So there was a sort of realization that the orders of importance of classes were actually vastly uh, modified by COVID. So oh. I think the COVID was more important in in that sense, and it's still because of a lockdown. People still are thinking. I mean, about we underpay all of the people who are actually useful <laughs> for life. How come? I mean, so, I mean, this is more in your field, but the, the demonstration of inequalities in the people who die from COVID is so striking. But a, a whole question, I mean, the Bourdieusian uh, class system re agitated, so to speak, by COVID made people move much more than I'd say the ecological questions. I'm still working on on geosocial class, but I think the COVID is is where we get the real people begin to to change because of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did write a paper on sort of on this earlier in the spring. It was called pandemicity and something, something, something. And the idea of pandemicity is this idea that the interconnection of humankind through contagion will sort of bring about this consciousness of, you know, geosocial classes. Or it's going to further re- the retreat into xenophobia and, fa- and neofascism and all that. And I guess it's both- And then six months later? Yeah, both are happening, but there's still more the, I mean, I think even though Trump lost, Republicans made gains. And the fact that 70 plus million people voted for him still scares me, wakes me up at night that there are that many people that think this way in the US. And so when you asked about the imposition, And then, you know, the imposition of lockdown orders and then the transition to the Biden regime. To me, the the U.S. has this very strange, I don't know if you want to call it libertarian kick, but, you know, I don't know if you've seen these YouTube videos of people in supermarkets fighting each other over, you know, they're just nicely asked to wear a mask and they'll fight and swing and have to be dragged out. You will never see that in countries... Like Taiwan or Japan, where they controlled it, or south korea i don 't know in Europe do you have these oh. this this phenomenon so it 's very strange like you know you 're uh, dealing with children, and the fact that only half the people said they 're going to take the vaccine, what does that mean for herd immunity and those type of things i mean i 'm of the i think we should force people to to you know you, you can 't send your kids to school if you don't get vaccinated uh, you know be that strong but we're definitely not going to go that far. Even my hospital, like I had signed up today to get the vaccine in a clinic, but they said, oh, it's not, it's not mandatory. And I'm surprised that a hospital would say- You, can you mean even for here. doctors? Yeah, and I think it has something to do with the type of vaccine. mRNA vaccines are new, and so since we don't have the longitudinal data on them, they don't want to force people to take a modality that is sort of new, but it's also the same thing to so say you can still come back to work even though you haven't been vaccinated is, is a bit interesting, but- <laughs> So so I don't have the highest hopes for uh, containment here. But
2: how would you rewrite your paper six months later? You would say, what, that it's it actually did it or not reshaped the way people see classes in the traditional way? I've always been interested in what microbes do to society. So if you add the COVID to the class, let's say, classical orders and inequalities in the U.S., did it change things? Even for the worse, but I mean... That's a
1: great question. I think it stimulated a little bit of thought, but more so it facilitated the kind of reactionary fallback towards xenophobia and uh, national boundaries and even state boundaries of becoming more uh, relevant now. Like I can't, when I go to work in Massachusetts, you know, I have to fill out these forms, like I'm going to Europe, right? I have to get a test to go. It's almost like a uh, regression as far as the fiction of political boundaries are concerned. Um, but maybe that's just the U.S. nature of having this Federalist system. We
2: both know that in the 19th century, the microbes were also used to produce the, the sort of fear of people. But precisely, it meant that you were extra careful of not approaching or not touching people who were actually transporting cholera or whatever. So the strange thing here is that you seem to say that it's a, a reaction of not taking, I mean, so it's not a classical way of handling the connection between infected foreigners, so to speak, with transport, the plague, or whatever, because it's, okay, then I don't protect myself. So, I mean, the consequence is very strange.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I hear people talk about when I land and, and work in Massachusetts, oh, You've come from that diseased state and we have a, a nice cocoon here in New England that if you don't get tested before you come, you can, uh, uh, you can
2: ruin our you know, regional containment. That was true also in the 19th century. Sure. So how come that people now use the same argument to say, well, then I won't wear a mask mm-hmm. and I don't give a damn. See, this is the, the disconnect between self-interest and the classical racist or whatever. If there is something new in that. It's still the same question haunting me about denial. Yeah. What, what is new in this in this strange situation? If you look at the pockets of
1: places that do wear masks, which are, you know, San Francisco, Boston, where there are elite white populations that have sort of made it. That you know, for someone in my position who's a professor at Harvard, it's no loss to me to accept the you know, multicultural future of the U.S. and to listen to to policies that go towards more equity. I would happily cut my salary in half if there were a reparations program for, you know, descendants of American slaves. As an aside, I'm a, I'm a chair of a reparations commission for the Lancet. But outside of these areas that are well-to-do, people are, you know, the especially white people are not in a position to say i am gladly give up half of my salary for greater equity and so i think that allows them to join anything that is anti that plan
2: the point of getting sick and die with from the this is what that doesn't register until they that's see a part it. i don't understand that seems very strange yeah. The, the disconnect between the self-interest and the hate of foreigners is the part I don't understand. Right. The hate for foreigners it is very old. But, the, I mean, America today, yesterday was the worst day, right? Yeah.
1: So you see over 300,000 deaths in the U.S., which is horrible and is more than World War II or is approaching it. If people don't see them, they think, oh, that's just a number that the CDC is pushing. If I don't actually see those deaths, then it's just part of deep state this or that. It's easy to write off and to remain part of the kind of anti, you know, we're losing America uh, narrative. And that's why I guess people give Trump more credit than he deserves because he's actually able to whip up this sentiment through tweets, through misinformation, me personally, I'm shocked at how much of the misinformation there is and the disconnect you describe. I mean, what I work on is once we actually get past that, once we start to accept facts, (laughs) I still think there are ways of curating facts that do a lot of, ideological work, especially epidemiology. So, for example, we have this Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is based at the University of Washington, and they've received $600 million from Gates alone to count disease burdens around the world. I mean, that's a huge amount of money, right, for for an an institute. They, They wanted to count what? Sorry, I didn't. Their job is to just count disease burdens around the world. So, they'll tell you how much malaria there is in Kenya through their black box modeling. Mm -hmm. But they also did the same with COVID. And initially, their uh, forecasts, the real numbers didn't even come within the 95% confidence intervals of their forecast. So they were very wrong, despite having this $600 million. They also said there was going to be a lot less than there was. So Trump jumped Mm -hmm. on it and said that, okay, you know, we're doing great work. Look, IHME said there's only going to be 60,000 deaths instead of the 300,000 there are. So they were wrong. They play into ideology. But three, or C, I think they're racist. If you look at some of Ibram Kendi's work, who's the head of the Institute for Anti-Racism at Boston University, he basically says things that like, If your analysis or your policy contributes to status quo disparities, then it's racist. It can only be anti-racist when its goal is to reduce these disparities. And so all these COVID models, whether they say, we'll be at 300,000 if you don't wear masks, we'll be at 100,000 if you wear masks, there's still going to be that huge disparity in Black Americans where they're dying at 3.5 times. None of these models talk about ways to decrease the disparity. We published a model, well, we didn't publish it. We submitted a model in June, which showed what reparations would look like in COVID disparities. And we're on our 10th journal. It's gotten denied nine times. And all the comments were not, your modeling is bad. It was, these are huge assumptions to think that reparations might change COVID disparities, where we have to say, really, reducing the wealth gap such that people can self-isolate better at home or not have to work as much in the front line. Is, is a huge assumption but it to me it shows the conservativity of our ways of parsing health phenomena that won't even allow the social imagination that you, know, you talk That's about a paper
2: on social classes actually
1: yeah and so now that i've read this i'm going to re i'm going to redo the references and and, and vocabulary
2: then it's a very interesting and it was published in Vienna.
1: so no we have a revise and resubmit at social science and medicine mm-hmm. and i'm Hopefully, it'll it'll stick there. But in the proof edits, I'm going to certainly add this and geosocial class because I didn't know that terminology before. That's very
2: interesting. It's a good case for but which is, of course, epidemiologists during the last year have been uh, stars of, of the media on television and so on. Mm. In your view, did the public learn anything about epidemiology in a useful way? I mean, the complexity of it, the, the difficulty of doing models, the multiplicity. I mean, in terms of STS, of sociology of science uh, culture, which is always my idea. The more you know about the way the science work, the better people are confident in it. Even though it's complicated, and precisely because people discuss and dispute. I mean, what what is your take on it as a, as a practitioners, and being on both end of it as a critique? Great. Did we learn anything about epidemiology? Is it is it an easier way now to understand the role of this? very complex science. I mean, the case you just mentioned is is another one. Yeah. So I've just written
1: or half written an article, which if you would like to co-author with me, I would love it. It would be an honor. It's called the tools of epidemiology. And it's a double entendre in that, you know, the tools are modeling and statistics and all that. But in English, when we call something a tool, it's also a puppet of something and, you know, it's being used by it. And so I think the public has come to understand that, yes, there is a specialty that goes into counting disease burdens and forecasting where they will go. And I saw something on Twitter that said, oh, we'll never have to explain what an epidemiologist is again. <laughs> and I think there is the problem because they're not seen as tools of, for example, the IHME. If you have $600 million to tell people that the biggest causes of death in sub-Saharan Africa are tobacco, alcohol, and, you know, driving accidents, and there's zero analysis of power, then you're a tool of status quo relations of inequality. Yeah,
2: no, I understand that. Yes, I'm not surprised. uh, (laughs) And so I
1: think getting to see, yes, it is an important science, but also to see how it's used ideologically is important. So if you're, you'd be interested in helping me with this article, I'd love to.
2: Well, I'm too old. How many of you are, <coughs> how many are epidemiologists there uh, are demographically?
1: Oof, that's difficult. Uh, you know, there, I think there's a lot. There's too many. And because, you know, we have these schools of public health and actually my book is about how schools of public health are essentially, you know, appara- uh, uh, what, do you, what do you say? Uh, dispositifs. They're uh, apparatuses for parsing health phenomena in ways that don't lead to, geosocial social class formation or or conscience of how neocolonialism, consciousness of how neocolonialism works. I think part of the problem, and this is me being self-righteous, is that when you look at population health, you're more likely to say, so for instance, we have somebody at the Harvard School of Public Health that said, it's okay not to wear masks. We don't want to ostracize people that aren't wearing masks because that just creates tension and more reactionary people and whatnot. But when you've been on the other side of it and you've seen people's families die and, and you've got 90 people in a single hospital that you're running around consulting on dying from it, you have a very different perspective yeah. <laughs> uh, on masks. And so I think their abstraction from actual people dying because they don't do any clinical work really allows them to me make irresponsible uh, recommendations like it's okay not to wear masks. So this
2: is the the counterpoint of uh, which I hear from my friend in public health against. Mm-hmm. Exactly, they say the, the clinicians. We say they only know people when they are sick, but they never study them before. So the book is about the whole earth, mm-hmm. public health schools. I mean, or oh, do you see some good point somewhere where where the health is also public health is also what we would call in our jargon critical public health.
1: Yeah, I think I give an example of a, of a paper I like uh, in, in a region I worked in in Congo, where it was, an, they were economists, actually, who are my least favorite of the, uh, quote unquote, social scientists, but they looked at medical, they looked at colonial records uh, from in France for Brazzaville, Congo, and showed that the areas that they had the sleeping sickness campaigns in the 1930s, which were very traumatic. You know, they took people out of their villages, they put them in these isolation camps, they injected them with poisonous compounds that would uh, lead people to become blind in 10 to 20 percent cases to treat sleeping sickness. In those areas, 80 years later, people are less likely to accept a blood draw or participate in medical regimens. Yes, okay. Right. So you know tying legacies of colonialism to current health practices to me i think is one way that you know the the science the uh, the inquiry can be performed so that it's not so ahistorical i guess that's my biggest problem that in all of this work it's so ahistorical they never really look at how social forces become embodied as these sicknesses they just say okay the virus has jumped into the body you're sick how do we get rid of it it's like well what set up the
2: the, the milieu you would say that the the big field in the U S everywhere in Europe of history of medicine mm. and history of, I mean, social history of medicine has not taken up inside the public health schools. If, if I understand what you say, I mean, it has not changed the way the, the notion of public health is actually understood because it has not historicized uh, the field. Is this, is this what you would say? the
1: I agree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I think of uh, history of science departments, they're usually at, You know, for example, at Harvard, it's across the river at the main university, and the public health school is is tucked (laughs) tucked away. I know them,
2: yes. I see. They are far away, yes. What about McGill? McGill? Hmm.
1: I don't know where it is there. I mean, they have great social medicine people there. Uh, But
2: they don't connect with the health people, the public health people.
1: I don't think so. I think it's hard to... It has something to do with, you know, most public health people are searching for NIH grants right? Not, you know, humanities grants. And so there's, there's a disciplinary disconnect that is huge. Even myself, I have to, I like pay half my salary with NIH grants to evaluate COVID antibodies surveys and Ebola antibody surveys when I'd much rather be doing more critical uh, social theory. <laughs>
2: Very good. Well, I think we are approaching our time. So some what is the, where do you want us to finish on what topic? maybe you could
0: ask bruno about the tensions between being what is the dynamic between a kind of informed criticality of science and how science produced with the kind of i hate the word post truth but the uh, the kind of science the the question of denial that you're approaching throughout the conversation bruno what is the tension in trying to uh, you know historicize sci- uh, science and kind of talk about science as a kind of critical form of kind of knowledge production whilst trying to avoid the kind of more and more attractive notion of science is kind of
1: completely kind of disconnected from people's reality. or No, no, that's great. I mean, I have here's where I have a lot to learn from you um, since you've been there, seen it, done it. You know, my, my worry with my book is because I talk about how facts are curated and how public health forecasts are constructed is that I fall into the, the conspiracy theorists use me for dismissing science. And I know you've been there and done that and seen the entire history. I've been
2: there, yes. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> you know, what can I learn? How do, I, how do you remain? And you've talked about this in, in your 2004 article, but you know, how do you continue the critical enterprise but still support the scientific one?
2: Well, I moved to the critical zones. Mm-hmm. That's another way of being critical. Mm-hmm. Critical was an attitude of distance, and now critical zone is where we live, and it's an objective place where the, all of these things are happening. Mm-hmm. But that's too um, glib as, a, as an answer. No, I think we are on the same uh, on the same uh, ground here, which is we still maintain the idea that the more you show the practice of science, the better people can relate to it, and nothing of a COVID amazing complexity of the politics and science relations made me change my mind because actually every time you you, people began to see that you were politicizing, I mean, in France, it was amazing. Every time there was a decision, you never knew if it was politicians hiding behind the science or scientists behind the politicians. And it was no use saying, okay, let's separate the two because it's impossible. But people lived... In a way, and we're still living today, we don't, still don't know what to do for Christmas and so on. With the uncertainty, somewhat, I mean, people are impatient, they are angry, etc. But they understand that the knowledge, the production of knowledge is actually a process and a trajectory where many things are uncertain and some things uncertain and some things are stabilized and some things are not in a way, which is which seems to me as a STS, score uh, scholar very STS, in a way. Yeah. And the con- I don't believe that the, you will feed the conspiracist. Even the most established fact doesn't stop the conspiracist. So, if you show the trajectory, it's not weakening, actually. But, of course, here I'm completely biased, uh, strengthened. And I'm strengthened by the very fact that this book, Critical Zone, is done with scientists. I mean, in my 40 years of work, I moved from being considered as critical of scientists as writing papers <laughs> with them. Because when we begin to talk about the critical zone, the old idea of science as the last word doesn't work anyway. And it's completely useless to think that we are going to go back to that stage and again get the confidence in science so much that when science has spoken, everyone will uh, get into order. I mean, this would be completely ridiculous. So the more. The more constructed, the better. And of course... (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: no, it was uh, for sure an honor to speak with you. Very good. uh, I really do appreciate that you're as a role model to show how you can shine lights on knowledge production in collaboration uh, with the people that are producing it instead of from the far ivory tower, uh, you know, firing your guns and
2: so. We appreciate and very good. It was it. a great pleasure to talk to you, and I hope the COVID will at some point disappear.
0: Thanks for listening to the MIT Press podcast, and thank you to Jean and Bruno for their wonderful discussion, and thank you to all the authors who have taken part in the podcast this year. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up with everything we're doing in 2021. We'll be featuring discussions, interviews, and readings from across the MIT Press's output, as well as introducing more content from the MIT Press journals. Thanks again to Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast and Kristen Galenow who provides the soundtrack. And finally, thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast and supports the podcast. I hope everyone has a nice holiday and I hope that we all have a more peaceful 2021.